Okay, good morning world. This is your host, Hacker Mike. And it is 4.57 in the morning. Time for my morning walk and our talk. And boy, today is a heavy episode. Or this is the beginning of a series of heavy episodes. So yesterday, we covered the science of insecurity, which I made some mistakes on. But more than that, we opened up the possibility. And this possibility has been in the back of my mind for some time. But I never really thought it through to the end. So, here's uh, what we got. Well, we know that the... um, We know that uh, a given computer program is um, could, or could embed a Turing machine. And this is something that we've known for a long time. I mean, I have known this for a long time that you can create a new machine out of an existing machine. And that we're just passing on the buck as we go. So that you take an existing Turing machine and you feed it the program of a new Turing machine and then it runs that new Turing machine on the old Turing machine. Even the Java, the Java system is just another virtual machine on top of a machine. And then you can implement another interpreter on top of the uh, Java machine, like the Python interpreter, and then you can implement another interpreter inside of the Python machine on top of the Java machine. You can do that on a VM and a VM, etc., etc., etc. So you can just keep on nesting these things. We know that. Because in the end, it's an open system, an open-ended system. Okay. Now, what I've been trying to do, we started on that yesterday, is we talked about the tree structure in the compiler. And then... We talked about the recursion and how the recursion in the tree system is underspecified because we know that the name field is not a tree. It can't be any type of tree. It's really only 
an identifier node or a type declaration which has an identifier in the um, or could be null so you only have three different possibilities and I guess you could have an infinite chain of type declarations I mean I'm supposing that but I've only seen one but I guess you I don't even think you can have a type def without a name. So in just this case of one example, and we attack these bit by bit, we will see that the actual tree recursive structure is um, too loose. Okay. So you could replace that name field with something different. Well, a type declaration can also be pretty complicated. So, but for the purposes of getting a name, it's not. When we could also take a functional view and say, hey, well, we just want a name from this thing. And we have some function for getting the name, and obviously that's going to work. And there's a lot of code in the compiler that checks the structure of these trees at runtime instead of at compile time. Because the input is coming in at runtime from the user. But as the lady says, you don't need to scatter it everywhere. You can actually put all the checking up front into some kind of language. <clears throat> but that language, as she says, is going to be turn complete and open to exploitation. Now, in a compiler, having your language open to exploitation is actually the purpose. I mean, not exactly. To hackers, but to the user exploiting it, it's definitely the feature of the system. Like she was talking more about network protocols and unintended exploitation, but the compiler basically gives you a interface to intend to intentionally exploit and um, define new recursive structures. <coughs>
because the type declaration can then contain the actual type definition. And the type definition can then be a recursive structure, meaning type definitions in the compiler can be very, very complicated and then lend themselves to a incompleteness at compile time. And we know that that a tree structure can compile a tree structure. And I've definitely thought about this many times. When the tree is compiling the source code of the tree, it, it's a self-referential system. It's making statements about itself. But even more than that, don't know how the um, how the tree is going to be used in general in the per in the future now my approach for the introspector project has been to take a bayesian or post hoc attitude take the closed world attitude and say well I'm sitting here in my Emacs terminal, in my Emacs um, editor, on the Linux kernel, compiled with a GNU compiler. I have a bash prompt open. And I have a set, finite set of programs that I'm actually running. So what if we were to say, okay, this might be an open system, right? I still want to be able to run any um, code on my Linux kernel. Right? I still want to be able to load kernel runtime modules, of which I do not know what they will be, because you can add them at runtime, especially with a perf tool where you can create code on the fly using LLVM. Right. So you don't know everything that's going to happen. But we do know well we do know what forms these trees will take for the compilation. So we have the runtime behavior of them and we have the compile time behavior. And um, we see a shift in the specification of usage to outside of the compile time into the runtime. So it's undecidable Excuse me. It's undecidable at compile time. Because we don't know what program is going to be compiled. We don't know what tree structures are going to be created. But we've definitely talked about this in the previous podcasts. 
that we can create some kind of over specificity. So, well, first of all, when we recognize that we have a recursive structure, so you have a type def that's empty, that just declares a name. And that lets you create a pointer to that type def, which hasn't been specified yet. And then, you can create a struct or a union that fulfills that type def. And have it point to itself because it already has a forward pointer. And that's the first step in recursion. And we see that in all types of code, um, in compilers, in the comp kernel, recursive linked lists, tree structures, all those things. Now, a linked list is like the simplest one. And as long as we have memory, like why should we care how long the list is going to be? Right? Like a user might want to create a linked list and he needs to add one more item to it. He doesn't want to say how many items he needs ahead of time. Like he's got a computer. And... Um, even if he runs out of memory, he can start swapping the disk. Even if he runs out of disk, he can go run and buy more disks and stick them in. Right? If that disk doesn't have a driver, he could pile the driver and load it in the kernel and still be at runtime. So that's what you have now. And it is unpredictable. But it is regular. Like we know that we're going to get a driver. And it's going to live up to these certain standards. It's going to have these pointers. And the kernel's not crashing. So if it ain't broke, why fix it, right? Just because you can't see at compile time what it's going to be, maybe that's a feature and not a bug. And uh, from practical viewpoint, the um, from a practical viewpoint, you know, um, we're getting more into modeling runtime behavior and user behavior. So I was thinking yesterday, I wrote up some text actually. I was saying, well, if I'm editing an Emacs and I'm running some Lisp code and those Lisp functions are really instances of, you know, C data structures in memory. But if I know what code I'm going to run, right?
And for a given action, I know what action I've actually taken. Let's say I use Magit, the Git interface, and it's pretty slow. But what if I have enough information on how it's used to feed that to the compiler and say, these are the structures. This is the version of Git that I'm using. You know, this is the repository that I'm working on or the type of repository. And they fit a certain regular scheme. Well, couldn't we reduce the possibility somehow? and uh, weaken some of the uncertainties, make things more certain by feeding back information into it, and by making things that are more specific. I mean, why does it have to be undecidable until the last minute? Okay, maybe for the user's benefit. Well, this is basically, these are the questions that I'm, I'm thinking about. And um, <clears throat> I know I've got a lot more thinking to do. But uh, I'm starting on a new attempt at um, recognizing this shift. And it's a shift from compile time to runtime in uncertainty. And I think that by creating this closed world idea, that we could actually try and bring some of that stuff back in. So I'm attempting that. Um, I'm attempting that theory. And I'm working on this idea to um, create a closed world. We're not going to allow for unlimited expressivity. Or at least we could say this part of it is fixed and this part is opened. All right. Well, I'm going to go to the gym and I'll talk to you guys in a bit. All right. Well, that was a short stint. I'm really more into walking and talking right now. So, so 
So when we get into this question of how how these tree structures are created, we can look at the runtime behavior from the actual compiler. And the compiler code will show us a whole bunch of areas where it has expectations of these dynamic structures. So I think the first step is what I've been working on for a while is how can we extract information about how the compiler creates them. But on the other side, I've been looking at the data itself, which doesn't tell you where it comes from. But we've talked about the different generators, and if it's generated by the compiler or generated by the user. So we've definitely talked about those things. Now what we haven't done is actually looked at the code itself of the compiler and tried to extract, I mean, we've attempted this, but not in ernst. In earnest. So from fun, it gets, it gets earnest. And earnest is now two years old. So we haven't talked about um, actually analyzing the different functions how they, uh, they generate or check, so consume or produce these tree structures. But let's just assume that we could do that. And we could learn something about them. Like, oh, well, this is not a generic list. This is a list of declarations. Right? And, um, so I'm assuming that instead of having a tree structure, we could actually create, let's say, top-level classes or structs. So instead of having a node type of declaration, uh, compilation unit, we'd actually create a type called compilation unit. So we'll see that there is a uh, correspondence between a structure and a node that describes the structure. Now this might get into generic. This might get into some type of undecidability issue. But luckily, we have enough information about it. <clears throat> Let's have a cup of coffee and think about this.
Sou. Let's just say we have a block of code that does checks. on the tree structure. And it's either, let's say straight, let's just say it's straightforward. Or we just say, if this and this and this and this and this and that. So if this field is set, if that field has a value that's this and that, some kind of simple expression, logic, subsets of the tree that match those patterns. Find subsets of the trees that match those patterns. So really, by specifying conditionals, you're specifying subsets. The node type is this, and this field is set. So there's a relationship there. And then we would see, we can construct from the data that's created, we could see, oh, the node type is this, and this field is set, and it has that value. So we can also see those relationships in the actual data. Like, we can assume that the data that we see in the tree dump is either from compiler code hard-coded, pattern-coded, or from the user itself. Or from the user from the outside. What I'm lacking here are the tools to say the statistical tools to say, okay, well, what is the correlation between these fields? Right? And 
correlation only can occur between numbers. variables, so that's not the right term. What's the probability of this field matching this condition and that field matching that condition? And then the joint probability of them occurring together, the end. That's kind of what we're talking about. But as I said, this is all very um, I guess we could just start researching into this again, and I have found that talking about it and trying to explain it on the podcast has helped me immensely to understand things, talking about things, interacting with them, giving them a new go. Oh, I see Mars, by the way. I don't see anything else, but I do see Mars. It's cloudy. I haven't given you the weather update yet, but it's warmer today. No jacket needed. Yeah, so this is kind of the question of how do we go from dynamic probabilities to total certainties? And, okay, if we have a closed world model, you could say that this, this is a probability in this sample set, and that sample set is closed, meaning um, we can actually cut it off and say, okay, that, that's something we're going to work with. Right? So, I mean, just looking at built-ins, right? You've got built-in um, functions, and those are uh, for sure hard-coded. If you run the compiler with no data at all, it's going to spit out a whole bunch of definitions already, the built-in definitions. And the structure of those definitions Let's just say it's layer zero. And then you do a topological. Let's just say we have our world where we're running, you know, 
Emacs, as I said, and Linux on some Git repository. And um, we'll just say that the Git repositories are all the Git repositories for all the source code we need. Okay. So we have the source code for everything that's running. And that's all there. And we do a topological sort. And we look at the core functions. And we decide what to compile in what order. Like what depends on what. And we get down to the core of everything. Well, you need quite a few tools to bootstrap compiler. And to compile the compilers. Now, in the end, in the end, um, we probably don't need all of those things. You just want to create a binary and load it. Like you need some kind of just-in-time compiler. That will emit machine instructions and some way to execute them. So we worked on a um, open source club for Ewing and one of the guys who showed up he was working on a, a tool to send instructions to a uh, one at a time to a uh, Arduino and control it from the web browser. So that was kind of interesting. So the simplest interpreter would be like present these instructions or present this instruction to the uh, machine and have it run it one instruction at a time be able to inspect the registers. That's kind of interesting. But normally the goal is to port the compiler to a chipset. To generate generic code and then compile the libc or the busy box. Or the micro libc 
sure there's smaller and smaller packages of things that you would actually need at one time. So let's just say that you have all of those things. And then we define a recursive function. And we just say, hey, at level zero, we have these core items. And even compiling the compiler and compiling the tree structure comes later. Right? We start out with simple functions that don't even have bodies, they're like built in. Cosine. Something that's not going to even be called. Because we're not calling cosine here, kids. We're just going to have a bunch of functions that are declared as your built ins, but they're not used. And even if you call printf, you're just doing a syscall, really. It's going to call the kernel. And the kernel is kind of what hides your um, runtime information, exactly what drivers are loaded. It abstracts all of that from you. So yeah, I definitely went over these ideas of like creating a set of test cases, but I didn't do, enumerate them like a mathematical system. So now taking what we learned from Gödel, um, taking what we learned from Gödel and from these other systems we can, that I've been reading about, we can just create a recursive function. where we so I guess we could split the world up into leaves and branches in this tree structure well so first of all things that are not used we're going to call them junk so, in an empty compile, everything you see is junk, it's not used. But in terms of tree structures, everything you see is golden. So that's accounted for, it's vouched for, it's from the compiler, it's built in. So, I guess we can say in that system, the certainty that you're going to get those tree structures is a hundred percent. And we could, I guess, fully accept everything as um, a given. Alright, we're going to have a cosinus function. have these integer types, we're going to have these built-ins. And we're always going to be there. Now, depending on 
or architecture you're on, they will be different. So depending on compiled time flags, and machine descriptions, architectures and all that, you're going to get the different results. So that is for this specific machine that you're on. Oh, look at that new moon. That is pretty. Or the crescent moon. So. So now, we have some kind of full certainty, let's say on level zero, of all of these items. And I guess we could recognize them. If we could a recognizer that would recognize them, we could create a generator that will generate them. I'm assuming that we could have full knowledge of those. Now, from a tree perspective, we want to be able to describe them and compare them. So then we're going to get back to individual moving parts. But the question is going to be, do we need to Similar things, you want exact things. Do we need lists of parameters when we have arrays of parameters? We know exactly how many parameters they have, we know exactly what types they have. Like, how else would we organize something? We knew exactly what it was. And then, how we describe it so we can compare it or iterate over it. And then we're back to the tree structure. We want to break things down into parts and put them back together again. We also want to transform these parts. We go from a less specific to a more specific, from a weaker to a stronger description. want to be able to get rid of pointers if we can. Or reduce the strength of those pointers. Like how many bits does that pointer need? How many different billions of objects does it need to point to? And if we put the objects in the right order, 
put the objects into the right order. So let's just think about that. Let's say we have a tree structure in memory and we want to generate some kind of struct from it that doesn't use any pointers at all. the linked list in the global list of declarations, then obviously that's not going to work. Because that pointer will point to almost anything. So we're going to have to remove some of these pointers and say, okay, well this is a pointer that's specific to Say set membership and ordering. It doesn't contain that much information. And that's a determination that's not going to be easy to make. down to it. We're going to get back to, I think, this tree structure again. We're going to hit it. We're going to determine that it's recursive. <coughs> and then it's underspecified. And then we're going to need to collect runtime information on it. But now this is where we get into the crux of this whole thing. And you may be wondering why you're even listening to me. And I wonder why you're listening to me too. But this is my therapy section, guys. So you can listen in on it. Or not. And I'm sorry to drag everyone through this if they, if they really want to. When we get to the point, when we get to the compiler tree structures, well, first of all, we don't know how this is going to be used. We don't have certainty of the version that's going to be compiled. We don't have the certainty of the architecture that's going to be used. It could be a new architecture. We could be porting the compiler for the first time. We might not have this information. 
so we're going to want a certain amount of percentability. trying to go through those enumerations. So my idea was that we would create some test coverage tool that would cover um, every bit of the uh, construction language. So you would look and say, hey, um, what part of the tree structure is covered by base case zero? As you add in, every piece of code you add in, every module you can could hit a new section of the tree, a new type of thing, or introduce a new condition. system or quick check from Haskell. as well. Let's start first, let's start second. And where everything depends on something that's already been done, and adds in one new... 
Yeah, I mean, this is also going to get into the question of multiple compilations. Maybe even conflicting identifiers inside of different compilation units. Conflicting definitions. So, okay. So we're defining some type of problems here. We're saying we need to determine an ordering code to cover the tree structure. We come up with an order in the tree structures that need to be covered. Structure in the underspecified recursive function. So we have some pointers. We want to know if we can replace these pointers at runtime with compile time. So we want to capture information about them. So every time we see a pointer, we can capture information about what actual type is behind it. Well, in the compiler sense, it's always the same type. It's a tree, which is an amorphous type, a blob. If you have a blob structure, how can you analyze that? Well, if we have a closed system, we know exactly what blobs will be created. And even if we just pick an arbitrary order, we pick some order that we can compile everything. And let's say we don't do a bootstrap on the compiler, right? Or we do do a bootstrap, or whatever. But let's just say we're going to compile everything using the system compiler as it is. Okay? So... You don't have to go crazy about the uh, ordering. Okay? Let's just say we compile everything. And we look at all the code. And then we look at all the tree nodes that are hit. All of them. 
and all the different fuel values that they could take. Well, we've done this multiple times. Maybe not a huge set. Let's say we have a big computer, or lots of small computers, and we do them all individually. And we produce S3 buckets, and we'll then merge these buckets together and make some sense. And looking at one, looking at many. We do know some facts here. First of all, and we talked about this before, the structure of the trees will model the structure of the source code. The structure of the trees will then the structure of memory. Sinus function or something in between. And, um, you know, the Git system, we're going to have certain repositories checked out. So we have all those repositories, all the code that we need bootstrap, let's call that level B. So we go from 0 to B for a series of steps to get to the bootstrap phase where we actually can run the system. And then we're going to get to B2 where we actually compile everything again using a new compiler. So we compile the compiler, create a whole new bootstrap, and let's say we augment everything, and we collect all this runtime information, good morning.
collect all this runtime information. Oh boy, I hope I was even recording all of this. The microphone was tilted back. Let's go and listen. Shit. Okay. Well, I'm starting a new recording. Maybe that last recording got lost. We'll see. It's uncertain at this point. But let's uh, talk about what we did. Concise, we can make it more concise. We've gotten to the point where let's just say we can determine some kind of ordering. So first of all, we have base case zero, we have a compiler with nothing in it. Then we compile everything to do the bootstrap, meaning running Emacs on Linux with all the Git stuff checked out for that current version. Right, having bash. So let, let's say that's bootstrap level one. Then we compile <coughs> The compiler using that system so we compile it we compile everything from scratch we did that in bootstrap level one and then um, we use the new compiler we just created to create bootstrap level two because in the beginning we're using the system compiler now we're going to create the new version of the compiler and we're going to run that assuming it's the same architecture we might even have a separate architecture and be creating a cross compiler but let's just start with simple so now we have some say some runtime information not only do we have the source code but we have the runtime information of the compiler that's compiling all this code and it might be using you know gigabytes and gigabytes of memory and then we're producing a new system But here's how we can close this world. We know, oh my god, now we got this Venus and the crescent moon next to each other. Let's see if we can get a picture of that. It's kind of bright right here. Well, it might be a different star, it might not be Venus, but it's pretty cloudy. And they're pretty bright. Okay.
So, we have a humongous amount of memory that's going to be used in compilation. And all these different things are going to be used. So you've got operating system, you've got compiler code that's being executed, you've got disk, well we said operating system. It's mostly that. So the actual runtime of the compiler, the bootstrap itself, is far more than just the tree structure, because there's a lot of stages of the compiler that happen after that tree. And those are going to give mem meaning to the trees as well. Like, how will they end up in source code? Right? Where is time being spent? Where is memory being spent? Where is CPU being spent? Well, that's time. What instructions are being actually executed? So we can get into profiling. But I'm saying that we can do more than just profile. And more than just optimize. Because we know we know what the um, outcome is going to be. We're going to compile the compiler. And we're going to compile Emacs. We're going to run Emacs. We're going to do a git status. So how can we make Magit status run quicker? Well, we know more about it. We're going to know how Emacs is compiled and its runtime information. We know how the compiler is compiled. And there's all these steps that are behind the actual running of Magit status. Okay, now the question is, how much of it's waste? How much of it is uncertainty that can be removed? How many checks and how many instructions are being run at runtime? which we know now, for a fact, are obvious. So we have these conditions that are being checked, and how many of those checks are superfluous? How many of those checks are redundant? How much of this information is redundant? 
can we create some kind of compressor, some way to compare and compress. And I'm thinking we can topologically sort, can determine some kind of ordering, can look for leaves, and uh, we can give it alphabetical ordering. We can create some kind of, let's call it can canonical, a canon, a canonical form, where we always produce the same form and they can compare things. But even just from the tree structures, um, we know that it's wasteful. And there's all types of runtime in the compiler, all these ifs, all these checks, maybe these are redundant. So to get back to the security thing, if we do all of these checks ahead of time, we front load all this checking, and then give some kind of security signature, right? some kind of multi-pass and say, hey, I've done all these checks on this object, on this piece of data, and actually we're coming from the future. We know what this piece of data is going to do and where is it going to go, right? So what if we can just mark something as future-proof and say we know for a fact where this is going? We know where it came from, we know where it's going. Um, and we can verify it. I mean, how much faster could we make the compiler? Uh, how much of this runtime information do we need? I mean, how many dynamic descriptors do we need? And you know, what are we going to do with these dynamic descriptors anyway? Like, okay, we can generate them, but who's going to consume them? And can we do those in blocks instead of piecemeal? All right, let me go check on the recording and make sure it was okay. All right, so I've decided to leave that episode, that section number two in, because I think morning I think uh, it will be uh, okay I mean if you're gonna actually listen to this then you might as well be tortured and listen to that even if the audio levels down you can turn your headset up headsets up and I'm sorry for anyone who is struggling through this I can't believe anyone would actually want to listen to it but as I said, this is part of my therapy session and you're just gonna sit in on it. So, sorry guys.
Okay. So where were we? We have some kind of certainty. Where, let's just say that we can query for a given pointer um, what it's going to be. And we can enumerate over all the different things it could be at runtime. From this big database that we're collecting. Okay? This profile database. And let's say we could squish it down somehow to fit into memory. And we could get it into some canonical form. interesting if we could do that. Very interesting. And then, at compile time, we would say, hey, we have this pointer, but what are the different forms that it could take? What are the probabilities that those forms occur? And then, also in the context of a compilation unit, those probabilities are joint probabilities, so we also have other information about, let's say, what file name we're in, what project we're in, what version of that file that we're in. Like contextual information, it's not a context-free grammar, it's a context-dependent grammar, from the outside, we're going to feed that contextual information in because we got it from the compiler we got it from the environment we know that we're in bootstrap phase X we know a long list of versions of all the different source code that we have okay we know what module we're in and because we ran this before we know what it's going to be or what it could be we know it's going to be one of these things yeah and this is where we're going to um, be able to get rid of the tree structures I think at least strip out all of the, or jump over the code that actually executes the check at runtime, and turn that into a compile time check. So we'll say, oh, we recognized uh, a runtime check for compile time information, and we can compress those instructions together, and then um, remove them or jump over them at runtime 
I like that. Skip them. Skip into them, skip out of them. If the uh, data is presented to be from the future, from the Bayesian post hoc world. I mean, that's just an idea, but I like this idea. Can we skip over the instructions? Can we make it faster? Can we have multiple entry points into the same code? One, and there's just say, oh, well, this tree, I'll just introduce a new field into the tree, into the structure, and say, what's its signature? And we could compile a signature based upon everything that happens to it, a summary, and that would contain a digest, like an MD5 signature. Or could it be like a vector that contains everything that's relevant to it and a long string of numbers? Word to vect, you know, like 10,000 numbers that represent the whole thing. Is that possible? Okay, well, these are some crazy questions. You know, I'm going to clearly mark this episode as totally introspective and don't even listen to it. Because uh, we're going to move on back to the real world now and do some clips for my peeps who like to hear some people screaming about shit. Okay. This is going to be something to think about, guys.